0: The Autobiography of a Sexually Emancipated Communist Woman Written in 1926 by Alexandra Kaluntai Transcribed for Marxist.org in 2001 Section 1. The Aims and Worth of My Life Nothing is more difficult than writing an autobiography, what should be emphasized, just what is of general interest. It is advisable above all to write honestly and dispense with any of the conventional introductory protestations of modesty. For if one is called upon to tell about one's life so as to make the events that made it what it became, useful to the general public it can mean only that one must have already wrought something positive in life accomplished a task that people recognize accordingly it is a matter of forgetting that one is writing about oneself of making an effort to abjure one's ego so as to give an account as objectively as possible of one's life in the making and of one's accomplishments i intend to make this effort but whether it will turn out successfully is something else again at the same time i must confess that in a certain sense this autobiography poses a problem for me for by looking back while prying simultaneously into the future i will also be presenting to myself the most crucial turning points of my being and accomplishments in this way i may succeed in setting into bold relief that which concerns the women's liberation struggle and further the social significance which it has that i ought not to shape my life according to the given model that I would have to grow beyond myself in order to be able to discern my life's true line of vision was an awareness that was mine already in my youngest years. At the same time, I was also aware that in this way I could help my sisters to shape their lives, in accordance not with the given traditions, but with their own free choice to the extent, of course, that social and economic circumstances permit, I always believed that the time inevitably must come when women will be judged by the same moral standards applied to man for it is not her specific feminine virtue that gives her a place of honor in human society, but the worth of the useful mission accomplished by her, the worth of her personality as human being, as citizen, as thinker, as fighter. Subconsciously, this motive was the leading force of my whole life and activity, to go my way, to work, to struggle, to create side-by-side with men, and to strive for the attainment of a universal human goal. For nearly 30 years, indeed, I have belonged to the Communists, but at the same time to shape my personal intimate life as a woman according to my own will and according to the given laws of my nature It was this that conditioned my line of vision and in fact I have succeeded in structuring my intimate life according to my own standards And I make no secret of my love experiences any more than does a man above all however, I never let my feelings the joy or pain of love take the first place in my life in as much as creativity activity struggle always occupied the foreground i managed to become a member of a government cabinet of the first bolshevik cabinet in the years 1917 1918 i am also the first woman ever to have been appointed ambassadress, a post which i occupied for 3 years and from which i resigned of my own free will this may serve to prove that women certainly can stand above the conventional conditions of the age the world war The stormy, revolutionary spirit now prevalent in the world, in all areas, has greatly contributed to blunting the edge of the unhealthy, overheated double standard of morality. We are already accustomed not to make overly taxing demands, for example, on actresses and women belonging to the free professions in matters relating to their married life. Diplomacy, however, is a caste which, more than any other, maintains its old customs, usages, traditions, and above all, It's strict ceremonial. The fact that a woman, a free, a single woman, was recognized in this position without opposition shows that the time has come when all human beings will be equally appraised according to their activity and their general human dignity. When I was appointed as Russian envoy to Oslo, I realized that I had thereby achieved a victory not only for myself, but for women in general, and indeed a victory over their worst enemy, that is to say, over conventional morality and conservative concepts of marriage. When, on occasion, I am told that it is truly remarkable that a woman has been appointed to such a responsible position, I always think to myself that, in the final analysis, the principle of victory as regards women's liberation does not lie in this fact alone. Rather, what is of a wholly special significance here is that a woman, like myself, who has settled scores with the double standard and who has never concealed it, was accepted into a caste which to this very day staunchly upholds tradition and pseudo-morality." Thus, the example of my life can also serve to dispel the old goblin of the double standard also from the lives of other women, and this is a most crucial point of my own existence, which has a certain social psychological worth and contributes to the liberation struggle of working women. To avoid any misunderstanding, however, it should be said here that I am still far from being the type of the positively new women who take their experience as females with a relative lightness and, one could say, with an enviable superficiality, whose feelings and mental energies are directed upon all other things in life but sentimental love feelings. After all, I still belong to the generation of women who grew up at a turning point in history. Love, with its many disappointments, with its tragedies and eternal demands for perfect happiness, still played a very great role in my life. An all too great role. It was an expenditure of precious time and energy, fruitless and, in the final analysis, utterly worthless." We, the women of the past generation, did not yet understand how to be free. The whole thing was an absolutely incredible squandering of our mental energy. A diminution of our labor power, which was dissipated in barren emotional experiences. It is certainly true that we, myself as well as many other activists, militants, and working women contemporaries, were able to understand that love was not the main goal of our life and that we knew how to place work at its center. Nevertheless, we could have been able to create and achieve much more had our energies not been fragmentized in the eternal struggle with our egos and with our feelings for another. It was, in fact, an eternal defensive war against the intervention of the male into our ego. A struggle revolving around the problem complex, work, or marriage and love. We, the older generation, did not yet understand, as most men do, and as young women are learning today, that work and the longing for love can be harmoniously combined, so that work remains as the main goal of existence. Our mistake was that each time we succumbed to the belief that we had finally found the one and only in the man we loved, the person with whom we believed we could blend our soul, one who was fully ready to recognize us as a spiritual-physical force. But over and over again things turned out differently, since the man always tried to impose his ego upon us and adapt us fully to his purposes. Thus, despite everything, the inevitable inner rebellion ensued, over and over again, since love became a fetter. We felt enslaved and tried to loosen the love bond, and after the eternally recurring struggle with the beloved man, we finally tore ourselves away and rushed toward freedom. Thereupon we were again alone, unhappy, lonesome, but free. Free to pursue our beloved chosen ideal, work. Unfortunately, young people, the present generation, no longer have to go through this kind of struggle, which is absolutely unnecessary to human society. Their abilities, their work energy, will be reserved for their creative activity. Thus the existence of barriers will become a spur. It is essential that I relate some details here about my private life. My childhood was a very happy one. Judging by outward circumstances, my parents belonged to the old Russian nobility. I was the only child born of my mother's second marriage mother was separated and I was born outside the second marriage and then adopted. I was the youngest, the most spoiled, and the most coddled member of my family. This, perhaps, was the root cause of the protest against everything around me that very early burgeoned within me. Too much was done for me in order to make me happy. I had no freedom of maneuver either in the children's games I played or in the desires that I wanted to express. At the same time, I wanted to be free. I wanted to express desires on my own, to shape my own little life. My parents were well to do. There was no luxury in the house, but I did not know the meaning of privation. Yet, I saw how other children were forced to give up things, and I was particularly and painfully shocked by the little peasant children who were my playmates. We lived almost always in the countryside, on the estate of my grandfather, who was a Finn. Already as a small child, I criticized the injustice of adults, and I experienced as a blatant contradiction the fact that everything was offered to me whereas so much was denied to the other children. My criticism sharpened as the years went by, and the feeling of of revolt against the many proofs of love around me grew apace. Already, early in life, I had eyes for the social injustices prevailing in Russia. I was never sent to school because my parents lived in a constant state of anxiety over my health, and they could not endure the thought that I, like all other children, should spend two hours daily far from home. My mother probably also had a certain horror of the liberal influences with which I might come into contact at the high school. Mother, of course, considered that I was already sufficiently critically inclined. Thus, I never received my education at home under the direction of a proficient, clever tutorist who was connected with the Russian revolutionary circles. I owe very much to her, Madame Marie Strakova. I took the examinations, qualifying me for admission to the university when I was barely 16 in 1888, and thereafter I was expected to lead the life of a young society woman. Although my education had been unusual and caused me much harm, for years I was extremely shy and utterly inept in the practical matters of life. It must nevertheless be said that my parents were by no means reactionaries. On the contrary, they were even rather progressive for their time, but they held fast to traditions where it concerned the child, the young person under their roof. My first bitter struggle against these traditions revolved around the idea of marriage. I was supposed to make a good match, and mother was bent upon marrying me off at a very early age. My oldest sister, at the age of 19, had contracted marriage with a highly placed gentleman who was nearly 70. I revolted against this marriage of convenience, this marriage for money, and wanted to marry only for love out of a great passion. Still very young and against my parents' wishes, I chose my cousin, an impecunious young engineer whose name, Kaluntai, I still bear today. My maiden name was Demontovic. The happiness of my marriage lasted hardly three years. I gave birth to a son. Although I personally raised my child with great care, motherhood was never the kernel of my existence. The child had not been able to draw the bonds of my marriage tighter. I still loved my husband, but the happy life of a housewife and spouse became, for me, a cage. More and more, my sympathies. My interests turned to the revolutionary working class of Russia. I read voraciously. I zealously studied all social questions, attended lectures, and worked in semi-legal societies for the enlightenment of the people. These were the years of the flowering of Marxism in Russia, 1893-96. through 96. Lenin at that time was only a novice in the literary and revolutionary arena. George Plekhanov was the leading mind of the time. I stood close to the materialist conception of history since, in early womanhood, I had inclined towards the realistic school. I was an enthusiastic follower of Darwin and Rolschitz, a visit to the big and famous Krengolm textile factory which employed 12,000 workers of both sexes, decided my fate. I could not lead a happy, peaceful life when the working population was so terribly enslaved. I simply had to join this movement. At that time, this led to differences with my husband, who felt that my inclinations constituted an act of personal defiance directed against him. I left husband and child and journeyed to Zurich in order to study political economy under Professor Heinrich Herkner therewith began my conscious life on behalf of the revolutionary goals of the working class movement. When I came back to St. Petersburg, now Leningrad, in 1899, I joined the illegal Russian Social Democratic Party. I worked as a writer and propagandist. The fate of Finland, whose independence and relative freedom were being threatened by the reactionary policy of the Tsarist regime at the end of the 90s, exercised a wholly special power of attraction upon me. Perhaps my particular gravitation towards Finland resulted from the impression's I received on my grandfather's estate during my childhood. I actively espoused the cause of Finland's national liberation. Thus, my first extensive scientific work in political economy was a comprehensive investigation of the living and working conditions of the Finnish proletariat in relation to my industry. The book appeared in 1903 in St. Petersburg. My parents had just died, my husband and I had been living separately for a long time, and only my son remained in my care. Now I had the opportunity to devote myself completely to my aims, to the Russian revolutionary movement and to the working class movement of the whole world. Love, marriage, family, all were secondary, transient matters. They were there. They intertwined with my life over and over again. But as great as was my love for my husband, immediately it transgressed a certain limit in relation to my feminine proneness to make sacrifice. Rebellion flared in me anew. I had to go away. I had to break with the man of my choice. Otherwise, this was a subconscious feeling in me. I would have exposed myself to the danger of losing my selfhood. It must also be said that not a single one of the men who were close to me, has ever had a direction-giving influence on my inclinations, strivings, or my worldview. On the contrary, most of the time I was the guiding spirit. I acquired my view of life, my political line from life itself, and in uninterrupted study from books. In 1905, at the time the so-called first revolution in Russia broke out, after the famous Bloody Sunday, I had already acquired a reputation in the field of economic and social literature. And in those stirring times, when all energies were utilized in the storm of revolt, it turned out that I had become very popular as an orator. Yet, in that period, I realized for the first time how little our party concerned itself with the fate of women of the working class, and how meager was its interest in women's liberation. To be sure, a very strong bourgeois women's movement was already in existence in Russia, but my Marxist outlook pointed out to me with an illuminating clarity, that women's liberation could take place only as the result of the victory of a new social order and a different economic system. Therefore, I threw myself into the struggle between the Russian suffragettes, and I strove with all my might to induce the working-class movement to include the woman question as one of the aims of its struggle and its program. It was very difficult to win my fellow members over to this idea. I was completely isolated with my ideas and demands. Nevertheless, in the years 1906 through 1908, I won a small group of women party comrades over to my plans. I wrote an article published in the illegal press in 1906 in which, for the first time, I set forth the demand to call the working class movement into being in Russia through systematic party work. In autumn of 1907, we opened up the first Working Women's Club Many of the members of this club, who were still very young workers at that time, now occupy important posts in the new Russia and in the Russian Communist Party. K. Nikolaeva, Marie Burke, etc. One result of my activity in connection with the women workers, but especially of my political writings, among which was a pamphlet on Finland containing the call to rise up against the Tsarist Duma with arms, was the institution of legal proceedings against me which held out the grim prospect of spending many years in prison. I was forced to disappear immediately and was never again to see my home. My son was taken in by good friends. My small household liquidated. I became an illegal. It was a time of strenuous work. The first all-Russian Women's Congress, which had been called by the bourgeois suffragettes, was scheduled to take place in December of 1908. At that time, the reaction was on the rise, and the working class movement was prostrate again after the first victory in 1905. Many party comrades were in jail, others had fled abroad. The vehement struggle between the two factions of the Russian Workers' Party broke out anew. The Bolsheviks on one side, the Mensheviks on the other. In 1908, I belonged to the Menshevik faction, having been forced thereto by the hostile position taken by the Bolsheviks towards the Duma, a pseudo-parliament called by the Tsar, in order to pacify the rebellious spirits of the age. Although, with the Mensheviks, I espoused the point of view that even a pseudo-parliament should be utilized as a tribute for our party, and that the elections for the Duma must be used as an assembling point for the working class. But I did not side with the Mensheviks on the question of coordinating the forces of the workers with the liberals, in order to accelerate the overthrow of absolutism. On this point, I was, in fact, very left-radical, and was even branded as a syndicalist by my party comrades. Given my attitude towards the Duma, it logically followed that I considered it useful. Useless to exploit the first bourgeois women's congress in the interest of our party. Nevertheless, I worked with might and MAINE to assure that our women workers, who were able to participate in congress, emerged as an independent and distinct group. I managed to carry out this plan, but not without opposition. My party comrades accused me and those woman comrades who shared my views of being feminists and of placing too much emphasis on matters of concern to women only. At the time, there was still no comprehension at all of the extraordinarily important role in the struggle devolving upon self-employed, professional women. Nevertheless, our will prevailed. A women workers group came forward at the Congress in St. Petersburg with its own program, and it drew a clear line of demarcation between the bourgeois suffragettes and the women's liberation movement of the working class in russia however i was forced to flee before the close of the congress because the police had come upon my tracks i managed to cross the frontier enter germany and thus in december of 1908 began a new period of my life political emigration Hmm. end of section the aims and worth of my life